Hello, welcome to episode three of Agent Provocateur. This week, we take a look at what 20 years of publishing books about Britney Spears can tell us about our culture and maybe ourselves. I, she definitely has lip synced. But you know, to me, that's it's somewhat symbolic. She literally has no voice. She's just this body on the stage that people use and they comment on. Where's the line between memoir and fiction? Writes Factory executive editor and author Diane Tarana helps us figure it out. Okay, there isn't a lot of distance between the facts and the fiction. And by the way, that goat's never going to refute your veracity. First, we take a hard look at the pros and cons of transparency in book publishing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our panel on transparency. So this panel was started by an agent, Carly Waters from PS Literary, who uh, on Twitter was talking about this toxic positivity in publishing. And she went quickly from toxic positivity to transparency between publishers and authors. And of course, as agents, we're in the middle of it all. And um, it reminded me of when I had lunch with an author uh, from Penguin Random House, when they first did their, they released their uh, uh PRH portal for authors about 10 years ago. And, and it was a funny anecdote because the editor said, when we thought, we, when we launched this portal, we thought every once in a while, the author might go on and see how many books sold that week or how many books are returned or whatever. But what, when they looked at the data, which came out pretty quickly after it was launched, they realized that several, almost all the authors were logging in several times a day to see what was happening and that they were so keen on getting any data, any kind of sales information. And, and they thought, this is something we didn't expect. You know, like, how, what is happening? And I said, well, authors have to wait two years for their book to come out to get any data. And then it's like every six months they get a sense of what's happening. So, of course, they're going to go on. And there's all that pent up desire to find out what's happening with my book. So from there... Um, I'm going to start by introducing our panel today. Uh, we have Diane Tarana, executive editor and author at The Rights Factory. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Uh, we have Ken White, um, uh, who is a brilliant journalist and is now a publisher at Sutherland House. Hi, Sam. And Jack David, co-founder of ECW Press. Hi, Sam. Okay, guys. So I'm going to start with, you know, looking back at this uh, kind of portal data, I mean, is it vital information for authors to know how their book is selling, especially their book compared to other books? I mean, eventually they'll get an actual number from the publisher. But like how how important how urgent is this for authors? Because I feel like this transparency thing is a is a kind of issue between authors and publishers sometimes. What do you think, Jack? Well, before I saw the PRH listing, I got a lot of calls from authors who said, I'm checking my Amazon, and this afternoon I was 412, but this morning I was 442. So what happened? What happened in the interim? Authors are curious about how their books are doing, and I think it's publishers' responsibility to give them that kind of information. The question is whether or not they have to reach for it or whether we give it to them without asking. It's a good question. Ken, do you have anything to add to this or comment on? Um. Yeah, I think they do. I, as an author, want the information, uh, and and as a publisher, I try to supply it to uh, my writers. But you have to be a bit careful about it because 
the information is not um, always what it seems. You know, you got a certain number of books in the marketplace. It doesn't mean that they're all sold. You might get returns. Um, I think the important thing to do is to uh, be transparent about the process and also to set expectations uh, for the writer. Tell them that, you know, you'll check in with them every week or every two weeks or every month or whatever uh, the timeline is, but to let them know what you're going to do and what you're going to tell them and when the information is coming and how to handle the information because, as I say, it, uh, it can be a bit complicated. Uh, yeah, and I'll jump in here. As an author, um, I would say authors are more than interested. They're obsessed with their numbers. So if they can find a way to find them out, they're going to. I, I joined up to BookNet through the agency with a, a fellow agent, at the Wrights Factory, and she was also an author. And I can just tell you, I spent way too much time on BookNet looking at my sales and comparing them with every author I knew and all the books that came out when mine came out. And to what end, I've asked myself, after I finally got rid of BookNet, to what end did I even do that? Um, Jack? I think the important thing is that you're getting a very skewed view from BookNet. Because you've got ebook sales, you've got audiobook sales in many cases, you've got special sales, you've got author's own sales, you've got sales that go out when somebody walks in the front door of our office. And they're not getting all that information. Or American sales either. Or Amazon sales, for that matter. I mean, they're very poor at tracking Amazon. And, uh, you know, for a lot of writers, that's half the business. So that uh, goes back to the point I'm making about having to be clear with writers about what numbers you're following and what they actually mean, because it's not always uh, clear. Uh Let's go to, back to Amazon. Sorry, Diane. Well, did you have when well, I say I, I was just going to say, though, my, my question, to what end still stands? So, Jack, to what end am I as an author getting all this information? Curiosity. Trying to figure out whether you can, you can pay your rent in April or not. <laughs> Who knows? It's a, it's a good point. Authors are always trying to figure out their place in the kind of literary firmament compared to the other authors, right? So there's that kind of ecosystem thing. I don't know if that... Um, I want to go back to Amazon, though, which is um, Ken talked about. So do we feel... I, one of Carly's points was that she feels that Amazon may have access to all this data that they are just not sharing with anybody, publishers included. Do you, are you guys feeling left out of that Amazon like mountain of data? Ken? Oh, sure. They, they know a lot more about you know, buyers of our books than we know about buyers of our books. I'd love to have all of that information, um, but I don't think Amazon's ever going to give it up because it's the basis of their business, and having a proprietary hold on that uh, on that data is really important to them. So, uh, you know, nice to have it, but don't hold your breath. Jack, any any thoughts? Is yeah, we have. We have a book called Happily Ever Older, pitching a book now. And this book came out the same time as the health book came out from a writer at the Globe. So our author is at the Star. That author is at the Globe. She always wants to know how she's doing in comparison with that book. And I can tell her, but she, I'm pretty sure, is selling a lot more out of special sales than he is based on his book net numbers. So, yeah, as Ken says, as I will agree with Ken for once, uh, it's true. It's, compli- <laughs> For one. it's complicated. 
if an author could find a way to get that data, obviously not the Amazon data, but the data you guys have as publishers, um, and could do something to up their sales, that would be very um, obviously beneficial. But I'm just not even sure how much authors who don't have huge platforms can do with the information to get out there and sell their books anyway. I mean, you can do some book events, you can go to literary festivals if you are, are invited or get yourself invited. But because I was able to track some of that before the lockdown on my book, you know, I could see 10, 15 books, maybe 20 books sell from an event and then the little thing go back down again. So I'm just, you know, what an author is able to do is pretty limited unless they have uh, a huge uh, platform. Two, two points on that. One is uh, I, I think that it's really important for us as publishers to educate writers and also our staff, our editors, people who work on the books, uh, to be aware of sales stats and to care about sales stats because at the end of the day that's what keeps us in business and that's what you know gives them opportunities gives them jobs uh there, there can be a kind of a church and state attitude towards sales you know i'm just here to create art i don't care whether or not the unwashed public wants it or not uh, i think we really have to encourage people to like the uh, uh sales side of it to embrace the sales side of it and so on uh, as for uh what they can do about it uh, it's true there are some authors without platforms who uh, can't do much at all, but every publisher will tell you now that they're giving a, a leg up to any author who does have a platform, and they're also expecting authors to use their platforms to sell books. Uh, so uh, it's important information to have whether or not your book is selling, whether you're in a doldrums, uh, so that you can make better decisions about how to use your platform, what events to do, what not to do, how to allocate your time in order to sell more books. So more information's valuable uh, to, to that end uh, towards everybody making the most of an opportunity with a book. Jack, any thoughts? If, you've, if an author is checking the, and gets really detailed information, and finds out that they've sold 15 copies in McNally in Saskatoon, but they sold nothing in Regina, then the author can make a move to try to, to try to uh, change that and call up their local store if they're in Regina and say, what's going on here? So yeah, it can be helpful that way. They're acting as sales agents, effectively. So one of the things that, that's come to my attention uh, just from watching the industry in the last maybe five years has been the most intense, but... I've noticed that publishers are recruiting more and more data people, data analytics, SEO optimization. Like, so is the new world of publishing having access to this data and figuring out how to use data to sell more books? And, and if so, how can authors kind of ride on that? Um, I'll start with you, Jack. It's not so much in our case, uh, bringing the authors into that equation. But today we are having a meeting about how many, how many copies of a book to print. And we had so much more information than we had seven years ago, ten years ago. We had where they were selling, and we had how much it was going to cost, and we had what the author expected, and whether we could do the fancy cover or not if we went po if we went pod. All that kind of information we just did not have before. So we're still making a lot of guesses about how many copies to print. I think we're just perhaps a bit 
more accurate now than we were. It's, it's a better model, Sam, but on one of the books, we were told by our sales reps that they thought that Indigo was going to come in for 600 That was their order. That was the, that was the projection. But when he actually got the act, the order a couple of days ago, it was ninety nine. Oh my god! <laughs> so it's it it still comes down to people talking to people and trying to figure out what's going on. Okay, I'm going to end it on this one question: Is there enough transparency? Because I think Carly's original thought was um, transparency in publishing, and I feel like you guys are maybe special in that you're like Ken when you said you would talk to somebody maybe every couple of weeks about how their book's doing, like. That seems really kind of like Max Perkins' level of publishing. I, I was I mean, kind of shocked, is, yeah. <laughs> well, we, so we, we that, put together what we call a welcome package for Sutherland House authors, and, and uh, it lays out for them uh, all of this stuff, what the expectations are on them in terms of using their platform, how best to use them, when to start using them, uh, all, all that sort of thing, and tells them what we're going to do uh, and uh, how often we're going to communicate with them and who to communicate with about what. And we do it in time periods, you know, the few months before the book's launched and then tell them what to expect a few months after the book's launch. And we've done that mostly in response to author requests for transparency. And, uh, uh, you know, it's maybe a little easier for us because we're new and we're small, uh, but I think that over time, uh, as uh, publishers get used to operating in a new environment uh, where the authors are a lot more involved in selling the books, it's going to become necessary uh, to have that level of transparency and back and forth between authors. And uh, I know I, I just published a book with Penguin Random House with Knopf in New York. I haven't heard a damn thing from them. I've had one call since the book launched uh, six weeks ago. So, you but know, dude, you have the portal. You have the portal. Yeah, you yeah, just go it's on. not really that helpful when you know you, you have <laughs> questions about uh, 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 what you could be doing and how you could be doing it and how you could help their efforts. Uh, the portal's not a lot of a lot of good. Jack, any final thoughts or Diane? Yeah, if we're, <clears throat> if we're talking about transparency, I think we should talk about publisher relationships with agents and and what goes on there. I'm here. I'm here. Talk to me. I'm here, Jack. I'm listening. And we've had experiences where, for example, and this doesn't involve you directly, Sam, where the agent will say, uh, I'd like my offers by the middle of August. And then we make an offer by the middle of August. And then they say, well, you know, it's summer and not everybody's around. So let's extend it to September 10th. And we thought that was the final offer, but they they just keep it open. So, we well, by the way, we've never done that to you. We we didn't do that to anybody. We, so the, we, so the, we stick by our the dates. The point is that the agent should be transparent with the publisher, as much as the publisher is transparent with the author. That's a good point. Noted. Okay, everybody, thanks so much, Diane, Ken, Jack. It's a a, a pleasure to have you on. I hope you guys come back and um, um, great talk. Yes, a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Few things in the publishing industry seem as subjective and slippery as the difference between memoir and fiction. Our own Diane Tarana has some thoughts. (laughs) Thank you.
authors. Today I'm talking about memoir versus fiction and the line between the two. I first learned the difference when I was in grade four. A school librarian introduced my class to a book set in the early 20th century, a story based on the author's recollections of her childhood. It would have been called a memoir except for one scene in which a goat ate 100 buttons from her dress. That never happened, hence the book was a novel. Many authors whose stories are close to their lives struggle with the two genres. Some haven't yet decided which they even intend to write. And some want to write memoir, but find their story doesn't quite work. Therefore, they want to insert some fictional elements, a clearer arc, stronger plot points, perhaps more dynamic scenes. These writers frequently say their stories are true, but they have rounded some corners, embellished the truth, taken liberties, or written with an eye to truth, not facts. Really? As an editor, I'm going to focus on those corners. How sharp were they and how rounded are they now? Let's go back to the dress, the hundred buttons and the goat. Well, you say there was a skirt, it had some buttons, and there was a goat sniffing around the hem. Okay. There isn't a lot of distance between the facts and the fiction, and by the way, that goat's never going to refute your veracity. But what if you tell me there was no dress, buttons, or goat? Instead, there was a sweater, a zipper, and a hamster. So my question is, why substitute at all? Let's just stick with the facts. We can tighten the story, shape it, and I'm sure truth will out. What if, however, there was no clothing, no fasteners, and no animal? Well, authors, that is fiction. I'm Diane Turana, executive editor at The Rights Factory. Thank you for listening. The publishing industry loves nothing more than doing books about celebrities. But what we at the agency wanted to know, if you look at all the books published about a single celebrity, and by celebrity, I mean Britney Spears, over the years, what can we learn not just about female celebrities, pop stars in this case, but about our culture at large? That's the question we've put to Catherine Wilms, associate agent at the Rights Factory, and here's what she came up with. So what's your connection to Britney? How does this, how did this start? I feel like I'm a woman of a certain age and uh, I was, I'm actually the same age as Britney Spears. And if when you're this, when you're a woman growing up in, uh, in my case, BC, but if you're a woman of a certain age, you just have a natural connection to Britney Spears, whether you wanted it or not. And then um, it just kind of followed her over the years. I wouldn't call myself a super fan, but I would say I'm invested. You know how sometimes you just get invested in someone because they've just been part of your life for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not part of the free Britney, Britney movement, um, but I've been really fascinated um, about what's been happening late, lately. And I kind of feel as somebody who identified as a feminist, even in high school, you know, Britney Spears has always been a complicated um, figure. And, um, you know, I feel like I've always defended her in certain ways when people said her music wasn't any good. My husband always says she can't dance, which drives me crazy. And I, my <laughs> argument is that she chooses not to sometimes, fair enough. Um, but uh, now that now we know that might, be, might have been a silent protest. Um, and then I had a couple other thoughts about why the story is caught fire right now. And one is that I wonder if like all of us being under lockdown, for a year and a half, um, if there's like a kind of an out- oh, so we kind of it resonates with us. It looks like we're under our own conservatorship, right? <laughs> I, I kind of feel like you know, it, in our case, it was government. It's not our you know That's our interesting. father, but uh, uh, it does seem like there's a real surge in empathy, which I thought was really interesting coming at this moment. 
good good point. No, good point. So there's uh, 13 books on Publishers Marketplace that use that use uh, Britney Spears names. Yeah. So looking at this list is kind of fascinating. It gives you a little glimpse of the last like literally the last 20 years. Um, so I had three kind of main takeaways. So the first one is Britney is not taken seriously as a artist. Um, in 2004, uh, this is actually a phenomenon that's developed. In 2004, she's mentioned in the description of a book by James Dickerson called Go Girl Go, The Women's Revolution in Music. And her name is included alongside Billie Holiday's. Uh, so that was probably a high watermark water for Britney. Um, this is three years before she shaves her head and sort of becomes this, this person that has uh, sort of um, yeah, it's a little more unpredictable. Yeah, a little more unpredictable. And then after that, her personal life really takes precedence in her in her narrative. So in 2005, she was named in a book called Trainwreck about the the uh, the women that our society sh uh, shuns. Um, and then you know it's interesting. I think there's been a little bit of an attempt to sort of uh, think about her music again. Um, Alex, Alice Bolin wrote a book about um, female the female body, but she also wrote a book about Hit Me Baby, Britney's sort of first. Um, seminal hit um, and she kind of has this article where she talks about can pop music be smart and looks at it as like an ode to loneliness so I wonder whether we'll, we'll come back around again and um, uh, sort of uh, re revision the music um, but she's always been used as um, a vessel to make political and cultural points. Billy Corgan when the Smashing Pumpkins broke up uh, said um, that they had to break up because it's hard to keep trying to fight the good fight against the Britneys. So definitely uh, Britney has not gotten a lot of respect. Uh, yeah, the good fight. <laughs> um, my second sort of takeaway is she's never been in control of her own narrative. Um, and uh, as you said, Sam, you know, a lot of people around her have gotten book deals. Um, her mother uh, wrote two books. Her sister. Her sister. Yeah, her mother's one of her books called A Mother's Gift, which is the worst title. Um, makes me very unhappy. Her personal trainer. We have two biographies, including something called an unauthorized autobiography. Sam, is that a thing? Can you have an unauthorized? I don't think that is a thing. Because like, I guess usually if it's um, unauthorized, it means you can go dig up whatever dirt and you don't have to run it by the uh, whoever the person that the book's about. So the point, and she's also part of, of two volumes of a book called Hollywood Exposed about scandalous secret lives of superstars like Angela Jolie, Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, Eddie Murphy, and Madonna. And I, I, that list cracked me up because it's a bunch of women and a black man. Of course it is. <laughs> um, but I think the point here is that Britney's voice is not represented at all, unless you count her book with her mom, which I would I would not. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the, the women, the starlets of that day, Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore, have been allowed to grow past that and respond to some of the narratives that were written about them. And Britney just has never really been given that that choice. And, and people have just used her in all sorts of ways. Um, I think watching the framing Britney doc, one of the you know, there's a scene where she comes out to launch her latest Vegas residency and she just keeps walking past the stage and she doesn't talk to anyone. And look, I, I, that just struck me because I know that Britney gets a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of discourse about her lip syncing and I, she definitely has lip synced. But, you know, to me, that's, it's somewhat symbolic. She literally has no voice. She's just this body on the stage that people use and they comment on. Um, so that, I think that's one of the big takeaways. And the third one is, uh, you know, I don't even know if this needs elaboration, but we live in a sexist society. Um, some of the uh, terrible things journalists asked Britney Spears in the mid 2000s about her virginity, her body, her mental health, her kids. Um, Silver, Sarah Silverman called her kids mistakes. 
Um, it's just the worst um, stuff to look at. And, and, you know, as you said, Sam, one of the books on this list is by Christopher Saylor, and it was sold by the title The Grilled Cheese Madonna, and it's about auctions. And one of the auctions was for Britney's pregnancy test. So I think... And what, what was it worth in the end? Honestly, I didn't look it up. Do you remember? Oh, my God. Was, what would you was, pay for... It was, what is it? It, it was five, apparently $5,000 U.S., so I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think that there's kind of been a reckoning of sorts, like I think with Amy Winehouse and that documentary came out. And, you know, I think there's been an, an idea that all of a sudden we start to realize that these narratives like really can hurt people in really fundamental ways. Um, so so in, in some ways, um, I think this is a really interesting time. And I think the real question that we're left with is like, will Brittany she's kind of found her voice now. Um, so does that mean, Sam, you'll be interested in this. Is there going to be a book? Is the real question. Uh, like a real one. About like an authorized, yes. Where she has found her voice, where she's taken control of her narrative. Because I feel like where the, that's, that's the only happy ending to the story, where she gets out of this conservatorship uh, under, it sounds like she's under the thumb of her family and this whole kind of empire that manages her money because everybody stands to lose so much if they... If they're if they're kicked out, uh, there was one person that they said in that New Yorker article where he was making more than half a million dollars a year just managing some small thing. That was his salary. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, absolutely. Yeah, so kind of have two minds about it. You know, on one hand, um, uh, like Jessica Simpson wrote a book about, and she she also sort of got painted in these in similar ways and has similar narrative. And we're in the book industry, so we're like always more books is good. But I also think, you know, Gia Tarantino makes an interesting point in an interview I heard with her, which is that what you do when you take away someone's capacity is it, it's sort of self-perpetuating and it prevents, it, it, they can lose capacity. And I think, you know, my hope for Brittany is not so much that she takes back her public narrative as that she's allowed to drop out of the public narrative if she really wants to. If she wants. Yeah, it's her choice. All right. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. That's a lot of Brittany really quickly. I'm going to have to absorb it all. And uh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I always have to talk about Brittany. I'm excited to see what comes next. And I hope that there's a little happier ending for Brittany here. Well, folks, I'm sorry to say that's it for this week. Thanks again to all our guests and our brilliant producer, Andrew Kaufman. Tune in next week when we pair wine writers and books with author and wine expert, Natalie McLean. And we discuss the rise of graphic novels and comics with Publishers Weekly's own Calvin Reed and writer and artist Hoche Anderson. Mm-hmm.